Ahoy authors! You're listening to The Writership Podcast, a show focused on helping indie authors master self-editing skills. So come aboard and get ready to find the treasure in your manuscript with hosts Leslie Watts and Clark Chamberlain. Welcome to episode 119 of The Writership Podcast. Today, we're talking about scene value shifts. I'm Leslie Watts, here with Jay Peters, a certified StoryGrid editor based in Seattle, Washington. To learn more about the podcast, visit writership.com slash podcast. As you know, the podcast is sponsored by Jim Kukral from the Author Marketing Club. Jim just launched his new service for authors called Happy Book Reviews. We all know that books with more high-quality reviews sell more copies. HappyBookReviews.com is a service where Jim hopes to make your book happy with reviews. Check out the options at www.HappyBookReviews.com because nobody likes a sad book. You can make your book happy with reviews. Yay. Welcome, Jay. Hey, thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be on the show. So we know each other from the StoryGrid training yes. in Nashville. Yes, and so you're a fellow StoryGrid certified editor, and it's been really fun talking with you about the submission today. Yeah, um, we have a great one coming up. Yeah, I'm really excited. So, but I want to, before we dive into everything today, I wanted to mention that if people want to find you after the show, where should they go? They can visit my personal website, which is at www.jmpeters.com, and that's spelled J-A-Y-M-Peters.com. Um, I'm also doing a blog series in celebration of NaNoWriMo that you can find at hugohouse.org blog. I'm posting a new blog every Monday throughout the month of November, so if you're looking for inspiration and tips as you are powering through a great month of writing and creativity. Um, I recommend you check those out. I do too. Um, I looked at your, your outline for the series, you know, when you, when you shared it in our group and it's outstanding. It just, it looks just amazing. So if you're doing NaNoWriMo and even if you're not, uh, go check that out. We'll have it in the show notes, the links to Jay's site and his series on the, um, in the show notes as well. So yeah, go check that out for sure. Yes. Awesome. So we have, I'm supposed to announce a couple of things. One is that we have a survey that we're doing right now and of course, I'm forgetting the link for that right now, and I forgot to put it actually in the show notes, but I will I will find that before the end of the show, and I'll mention that, so Liz will be happy that I mentioned that. Um, and then the other thing, there is another thing, yes, is that the Patreon book club is going to be on, I believe it is November 16th this month and I'll get more details about that too but you can always check out the show notes for that 
Um, and you can gain access to the Google spreadsheet that has all the podcast episodes with the genres and the topics discussed. And you can find that at or through www.writership.com slash index. And once again, I do want to say that the show notes are getting are becoming more and more robust. I'm just um, adding lots of resources and ideas and thoughts as I prepare the note for the author. And so I urge you to go check that out, um, especially too to check out the editorial missions. So, yeah, this week, do we have a quote, Jay? Yes, we do have a quote. Excellent. Um, this quote is from Sean Coyne, the author of the Story Grid, um, and he he said, "A story event." is a meaningful change in the life of the central character. And that change must be expressed as a polar value. Life slash death, lies slash truth, cold slash hot, etc. All that story event implies is that something has to happen. The scene begins someplace positive and ends negative, or begins negative and ends positive, or begins positive and ends doubly positive, or begins negative and ends doubly negative, it has to turn. Things have to be different at the end of the event than, than they were when it began. Uh, this is a quote to keep in the back of your mind as we talk about the focus, the passage we read today, and um, just talk about what we learn from reading the passage. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really, it will make more sense in that context. So, yeah, I think it's good for us to dive in and we'll come back to We'll circle back to that. That great quote mm -hmm. and put it all in context. So today's submission is a short story called What Lives Beneath, which is very spooky. And it's by author A.V. Hertzberg. And the author is calling it fantasy or suspense. Her target for this was 7,550 words. And we have, we are, um, Jay is going to read for us today the beginning of the story. Okay, so you can take it away. All right. This is What, what Lives Beneath by A.V. Hertzberg. On the distant hilltop, a sacrificial fire blazed, its lambent flames interrupted by dark, wildly dancing figures that leapt in the air and twirled about with loud yips and shouts. Unnoticed, she stared fixedly at the scene from the shadows of the lowland. And though she could not see the one whom she most yearned for, the sensation of that one's presence was like a strangling reed, like the dank chill of suffocating pond water. The darkness around her was close, asphyxiating, more so by the water and in the reeds where the frogs lay, silent and still. The shadowed land made the flames appear all the brighter, and the laughter echo all the louder as it came bouncing off the hills and down to her abode. The sounds were like stinging nettles to her ears, stinging and burning, unpleasant and hateful. 
Her hands sunk deep into the cold, slimy mud of the lake, clenched spasmodically. Her nostrils flared. The acrid scents of smoke, burning flesh, and the fresh metallic blood of slain livestock were little better. None of it soothed the clenching emptiness in her middle. None of it slowed the wildness of her breathing. None of it warmed the unbearable chill that radiate, radiated through every last fiber of her being. No, none of it could. Not when he was still there, still here, still on that hill so close, so close, so close and unreachable. Time passed. The fires died as the whole world became that ghostly silver that appears just before morning truly dawns. A young couple made their way down the hill. Drunk and holding on to each other, they laughed at every stumble. They had forgotten their fears, forgotten their sadness. In that moment, they were happy, oblivious to all but each other. It wasn't right. It shouldn't be that way. They could not be like that. Not in front of her. Not ever. Never, never, never. No. How dare they? How dare they? How dare they be? With a loud crack, sharp iron tore th into raw wood. The split halves of the log clanked onto a growing pile of lumber that had already met the same fate. A pause, and again the swinging axe cut through the air. The worn handle of the axe slid smoothly through his leading hand with each swing. There was a sharp, nagging pain in his right wrist that only became more aggravated with every piece of firewood he added to the pile. An ache was spreading across his lower back. Sweat dripped down his spine cooled slightly by the swift breeze and the reaching shadows of the forest, which loomed close to his hut like a malevolent neighbor. His shoulders burned. Yet there was a certain rhythm to the work. He found a systematic measure between the swish of the falling axe, the sharp report of the strike, and the clinking tumble of the hardwood. The small gratification he gained from the rhythm was poor compensation for the work, true, but at least it gave him something more pleasant to concentrate on than the growing headache, growing aches in his body or time the task was taking from him. Time indeed. Measure and time were intertwining to create the rhythm, much like a melody. Yes, he set another piece of firewood on the cutting stump. There was an easing in his chest at the thought, and he felt a small smile relax the muscles in his jaw. He brought the axe round again, his arms and back nodding and tensing with the power of the swing. Murr, came a sudden shout. The swinging axe missed its target, sped past the cutting block, and cut deeply into the dirt a hair's breadth from the wood splitter's booted foot. Frozen in place, Murr stared wide-eyed at his foot and the axe. His sweat-soaked tunic felt suddenly chill, as if it were forcing the warmth from his very core. He couldn't breathe. Dimly, he became aware of a tremble in his hands that quickly spread to the rest of his body. Murr, the voice called again. The sound brought Murr back. With a ragged, sucking sound, he took in a huge breath as he stumbled quickly away from the axe. He stopped. Closing his eyes, he slowly, deliberately breathed out through his nose. He took another deep breath and let it out, expelling the lingering tremors. When he opened his eyes, it was to level a burning glare of cold fury at the too tall, all too familiar figure who had come to stand near the haphazardly stacked wood that leaned against Murr's small, thatch-roofed hut. Lubov, the fisherman's son, 
looked back with wide eyes and a look of purely oblivious innocence. What? Lubov asked. Murr's eyes narrowed. Perhaps Lubov had not noticed the near miss his shout had caused. Then again, even though Lubov had protected Murr from the stronger and larger boys when they were young, he had not been above the occasional sadistic trick. A light wind rustled the leaves of the shadowy forest trees. It picked up speed as it passed through the primal wood and blew loosened strands of Murr's long dark hair across his face. Lubov's sun-kissed curls danced wildly, a contrast to the almost blank nature of his gaze. The silence built thick and heavy between the two men. Only when Lubov shifted and glanced down did Murr speak. What is it that you came here for? Lubov frowned. We are friends, are we not? Since when has it been strange for me to see you? When Murr did not respond, Lubov sighed. His wide shoulders dropped slightly, and he leaned warily against the woodpile as he reluctantly gave in to Murr's irritation. You weren't at the ceremony last night. With a roll of his shoulder, Murr dismissively turned back to his previous task. He grabbed a half log and clapped it down on the cutting block. When he hefted the axe, Murr raised his eyebrows at Lubov. His old friend could read him well enough to tell the conversation was over. Lubov's cheeks flushed. Jury and his woman drowned sometime this morning. That's sudden, but not surprising. Drowning deaths were common these days. Viciously, Murr swung the axe. The force, of the, the force of the swing shot a large chunk straight towards Lubov's head, and only a quick stumble to the side saved him from a flying piece of ash. Gods, Murr, what are you doing? With grinding teeth, Murr turned back to Lubov, who now sat cross-legged in the dirt where he had fallen, eyes throwing, throwing daggers. I'm trying to get these logs split before sundown, Murr snapped. After a moment, he rubbed his temples with a sigh. Will you be all right? Ignoring the question, Lubov lashed out. Are you not bothered at all? We've known jury since we were boys, and all you have to say is, that's sudden, I need to split logs now? Murr silently studied his friend a moment. Lubov's eyes were dark, his face drawn and pale. Though cross-legged, his muscles showed ridged through the thin fabric of his worn tunic. The fists he rested on his knees were white-knuckled and quivering. Still holding his axe, Murr answered evenly, I'm bothered, but it's not jury's death that's bothering you. Lubov's head ducked down. His silence might as well have been an affirmation. Murr nodded slightly. Iska, Lubov's betrothed, had drowned just before harvest the previous year. Heaving another sigh, Murr looked towards the sparkling blue waters of the lake and, barely a quarterly distant, the village. One of the smaller fishing villages that eked a living from the massive body of water, it squatted like a sullen child at its mother's feet, nestled in a small cove at the bottom of two rolling green hills. How many has it been since then? He'd long ago lost count. Casting a sidelong look at the man before him, Murr spoke slowly. If you are concerned, I won't be there to play the harp at her ceremony. Don't be. I'll play for you. Lubov heaved himself to his feet and lunged close to head and shoulders over the smaller man. He fixed Murr with a piercing stare. You should be at every ceremony. It's what the town pays you for. It's your duty. They die whether I play or don't, Murr said, standing his ground. His pulse raced. They think the gods are pleased enough with my music to offer them reprieve? The more fools are they. You are the fool, Lubov hissed, his eyes flashing. Abruptly, he turned on his heel and stalked away. As Lubov left, a large gray cat stretched lazily into sight, 
glanced mockingly at Murr with luminescent yellow eyes, then swaggered after the fisher's son. The hairs at the nape of his neck prickling, Murr watched the cat warily until the two disappeared around the corner of the hut. He wasn't sorry Lupo had chosen to leave. Letting go of the breath he just noticed himself holding, Murr leaned his axe against the woodpile. His hand ached strangely. Curious, he glanced at it, only to pause. Blood was just seeping back into white fingertips, and his knuckles might as well have been bone for their lack of color. Had he been gripping the axe so tightly? With swift steps, Murr almost ran to the nearby well and swiftly drew the bucket. With a chilling splash, he poured the entire icy contents over his head. After violently shaking the water from his eyes, he repeated the process twice more. Thoroughly soaked, he leaned against the rough-hewn stones of the well and stared, almost unseeing, at the large stack of unsplit logs. A gust of wind hit his still-dripping body, raising goose flesh. He shivered. Though still early in the season and not yet harvest, the air already carried the bite of autumn. So little time. Every moment of his days were spoken for. Wood splitting, fence building, tending the fields, hog feeding. Then there were the funerals and almost nightly community sacrifices to beg the gods for relief. Almost everyone had, had plowed a protective trench around their homes to ward off the evil luck, himself included, but it had done little to no good. None of it had. Okay, thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So this is a really interesting story, and I was struck while you were reading it that it's kind of, right, it's it's a, it's set in a place that is different from our own, right? Yeah, very different from our own, yeah. Uh, but we're talking about very, you know, very modern concerns about oh, there's just so much to do and not <laughs> enough time to do it. And that, yeah, that's a, that's a universality for all of us, right? Yes, yes. Whether it's stacking wood and uh, feeding pigs or, <laughs> you know, sending email and mowing the lawn. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, and I like that. I like that we can pull the our own concerns can mix with this unique environment mm -hmm. and we can use that to tell a story. Yeah. I think that's something the author uh, does really well in showing that wherever we are at all, you know, in all places in life, there are similar issues that can create a universality that, um, even though this is in a different place than we are, uh, there's definitely something we can relate to. Yeah, yeah. So when we were talking about this before, we were kind of taking a, a step back and looking at this because we have a synopsis of the story. We're, we're cheating a little because the author provided us with a with what happens in the rest of the mm -hmm. story. And so just briefly to kind of tell you, you know, to give you the same, uh, the same view that we're having is that there's um, a love triangle between Mir, Lubav, and Ishka, Ishkra, Ishkra? 
I S K A. Okay. There's an R in this one. I <laughs> ignore that. Okay. So when, so Lubov and Ishka are boyfriend and girlfriend. And, but Ishka is obsessed with Mir. And Lubov does away with Ishka as a result in a jealous rage. Um, but the problem is that Ishka is still hanging around and drowning villagers. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I'm making light of that. It's, of course, it's horrifying. But, uh, but since we're talking about a story, uh, then, so Mir has some suspicions, but he hasn't confronted Lubav with them yet. Mm-hmm. And Lubav has this uh, trick he wants to play to essentially lure his friend, former friend, down to the lake where Ishka's spirit will pull him into the lake and drown him. So he's got a, a vengeful heart and he's up to no good. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, messy world for Mur, Lubov, and Ishka. Yeah. Yeah. So when we were looking at this, you know, as a like we're looking at all the elements we have between the synopsis and the submission, we were kind of thinking about what genres, you know, are sort of arise from the elements that we have. And you were talking about the love triangle. And how, you know, we have this, this is a very clear element of the story, whatever else is going on. And then we were talking about the horror of this, you know, the undead or the dead spirit who is continuing to pull the living into the lake Mm -hmm. for company, maybe. But so when we're... So we talked about this, uh, uh, Chuck C. Stephen Manley and I talked about this in the last episode, when you're adapting something, a story from something else, you've got lots of elements, but we still have to choose a primary or a global genre for our focus. And so what you and I talked about is the next step is like, if you, if you accept that you must choose the global genre, then how do you choose? Which would you choose? So we have a story that has two really strong elements. And we would, you know, as editors, we would talk to the author and find out what their intention is. But given this context, what we can do is talk about the elements and what we see in the elements and kind of what the options are for those stories. Mm-hmm. So we have, and we would ask, right, what is the, the, of the, you know, from the Slavic mythology, which is the basis for this story, the inspiration for this story, what aspect of that is most interesting to you and pulls you in? But since we're kind of dealing with the raw materials we have in front of us, we're going to talk about the 
about what comes from that. So do you want to talk about the love triangle? Yeah. Um, what struck me the first time I read this and as I just read it aloud again is that there's, a, there's an opportunity for a really thrilling and intriguing love triangle throughout this story, um, especially knowing with the synopsis, with the goals, with the, the kind of dark ending that awaits our main character, um, I think there's some really fun and kind of genuinely creepy and scary stuff you could use to build a fascinating obsession love story, um, particularly in how the woman, Ishka, um, obsesses over our main character, Murr, and there could be some really interesting ways to tease out, like, is Lubov jealous of this obsession? Um, does Murr in any way reciprocate the obsession? I think the raw materials are here for something really, something that could be really cool and really creepy at the same time. <laughs> cool and creepy. I love yeah. it. So if we're talking about an obsession love story, what are we talking about? That sounds a little different from Pride and Prejudice. It, yeah, much different <laughs> than Pride and Prejudice. Uh, <laughs> obsession uh, obsession kind of takes a relationship or the, the, the love aspect of a story to the next level where there's, there can become an element of danger even of life or death scenarios. Um, and given the, the horror aspect that's already part of this story, uh, I think that makes an obsession story, a, it, a lot of what I'm seeing in this story totally ties it into that um, obsession type of story. Uh, and another kind of fun thing about obsession stories is they usually don't end very well. And based on what we already know um, about the goal from the synopsis, um, it's not going to end well for Murr. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think, I, I, I just think this could be a very interesting and very cool obsession story. Right. So when we're talking about obsession stories, The Great Gatsby is one. And I think Basic Instinct is one I as well. I haven't seen Basic Instinct it, or read it. It's been a very long time since I've seen it. Um, but that's what I recall. It's when, so it's, it's, we're not talking about love and commitment. We're talking about desire. And that mm -hmm. desire can be anything from a, a crush, which is kind of harmless, right, to the obsession where you think it's okay to drag somebody into the lake. <laughs> yeah. Which it's really not. Hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> but so it's a, right, exactly. It's a very different thing. But, you know, the cool thing uh, about Pride and Prejudice is that the Wickham and Lydia love story is kind of that obsession thing where they're not, right, they're not really in love they're just kind of, they desire one another. Conse yeah. Consequences 
are of no moment to them. It's 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 cool that that obsession story is in Pride and Prejudice, but it mm-hmm. doesn't affect our main main characters. So we kind of get a taste of what it could be, and because it's Mr. Wickham, it's a taste of what could have happened to Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but ultimately, because it ends so badly for Wickham and Lydia, we're glad that um, we only have our brush with obsession and get to see a, a more truthful love with Elizabeth and Darcy. Yes, yes. Boy, that would have been a tragic tale. <laughs> yeah, it'd be a totally different book if uh, <laughs> she ended up with Wickham at the end. And we probably wouldn't be reading it still today. It's not that obsession stories don't hang around, because they do, mm-hmm. but but cautionary tales are sometimes not as endearing or, you know, you're saying something else for sure. Yeah, it's definitely a much different message than what you get at the end of Pride and Prejudice, right? Yeah. Yeah. So even though we have the obsession story and it's a little different, we're still talking about values essentially of love and hate. Mm-hmm. And that's the, that's the, those are the values in a love story. But in a horror story, um, and I would say this is a supernatural horror because we're de- dealing with the spirit realm, um, the value is life and death. And it goes to a fate worse than death or sometimes called damnation. Essentially, it's it would be a mercy to die. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of poor Ishka's fate right now. Um, yeah. As she's, you know, she's dead, but she's still hanging around. And that's not <laughs> a great situation. She's Yeah, she's alive in spirit, but tortured at the same time right yeah so the and horror stories don't have heroes they have every man protagonists generally and the the protagonist's goal is to outwit or overpower the monster or not Mm -hmm. depending (laughs) on how it ends right so when we were talking about this we mentioned that they, the story is, um, the author's target was about 7,500 words or so. But we have three levels of conflict, right? We have inner conflict because Mir is, doesn't know, you know, should I confront my friend or not? He's having the conflict with Lubav. And then there's also this bigger societal conflict of people are are being drowned. And so we have to have these sacrifices and play this music and do all of this rigmarole when we're really, really, we ought to be getting ready for winter and doing all the things that will keep us safe and warm through the winter. Right. Yeah. And so that's kind of long or not long. That's kind of that's a lot of complexity for a story, the you know, of this size. Yeah, it's a lot to pack into what's targeted to be a, a pretty lean short story at um, seventy five hundred words. It's a definite challenge for sure. Yeah. So, and I, 
so that's just that's something for the author to consider along with considering do I really want to tell an obsession love story or do I want to tell a horror story primarily right either one primarily and have the other as a subplot and is considering like given all the stuff that I have going on is that going to is there enough room and also you mentioned about um, an author's style can affect um, how how those calculations. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think about when I when I read this. Uh, there's the, there's so much focus on kind of this this conversation or or arguments between the two male characters um but set in this this very kind of stark and difficult to live in setting that the author does you know some great description to really make you feel like you're there um so using that those stylistic choices to their advantage to say given what i've already kind of set the scene to do um, what, what can I use from this to further my, uh, genre choices and, um, make something that will, you know, could be really scary or it could be that obsession love story, or even if a different genre comes to mind for the author as they're finishing this, you know, going in that direction. But, uh, I think the, all those stylistic choices that the author is making can really inform those decisions. Yeah. Yeah. And that's great. And to me, when you're dealing with a short story, that's awesome because it's a great place to practice making those decisions Mm -hmm. because it's not 50,000 words or 80,000 words um, that would feel kind of, Oh, I have to change all of this. (laughs) Yeah. Um, so you can really play around with this and take your time to, you know, like, obviously we would be advocates for taking your time with any story, but particularly if you want to practice a different genre, you know, try your hand at a different genre or try your hand at a different kind of subplot or adding different levels of complexity, a short story works. You just need to balance all of the different um, options and things that are going to add length and complexity and with what your you know with your goal in terms mm-hmm. of how long you want the story to be yeah that's that's of course the challenge with every short story but it's also the opportunity to um really test yourself to see uh what can you pack into that short amount of space and it can also teach you um you know if if you're thinking about writing something and if you think, oh, I have 50,000 words to do it, maybe you include it. But if you have 7,500 words, then maybe you make the decision to not include it. And learning how to play with those limits and constraints, that's like, that's an amazing exercise for any author. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. So if we're looking at the values of love and hate, 
in the story and we're looking, you know, as a possibility, if we have an obsession story and we're looking at the values of life and death and a fate worse than death as a possibility for the global story of horror, if that's the case, and we mm-hmm. look at Sean's, back at Sean's quote, that, right, we have, right, a story event is a meaningful change in the life of the central character, and it can be expressed as one of these values, right, life, death, lie, truth, cold, hot, strength, weakness, mm-hmm. right, and the story right if to have a story event which is what we you know what a scene is mm-hmm. we have to have a change on some level and it it can be a wide range of change but it needs to be something that relates to the global value that you are working with or at the very least the subplot but really everything Every story event scene should impact or affect that those global story values. And yeah. so we're, what, we, what we're going to do now, right, is look at the scene and see what happens in the scene and then compare it to these two potential global values and then wrap it up in a nice bow to provide some good suggestions. Yeah. Okay. So when we are, when we're looking at a scene, just in, you know, editing, whether you're an editor or you are the author and you are at that, you know, that's where you are in your revision process. We ask a series of questions. And the first question is, what's literally happening right Mm -hmm. and so and we ask these we ask these questions with sean in episode 116 so that's another example of this if you uh just really want more of the like i need to understand how to apply the the five commandments of story and analyze the scene that's another great episode to check out Mm -hmm. so if we're looking at this scene What's literally happening, Jay? Uh, Lubov and Murr are talking outside Murr's house. Um, it's not a particularly pleasant conversation, but they are talking. They are talking, and uh, and Lubov interrupts Mir's work. Yeah. And yeah, and it's not a cordial. As you say, not a cordial coming together, <laughs> friends. So then the second question would be, what's the essential action of what's happening? And that question is really getting at, it takes into, or I should say, it takes into account the motivations of the people. And so if we were to say, if we were to, you know, just kind of, Based on this scene, what's the essential action or what's one way to describe the essential action that's happening of what's happening? What what the the term I used is Murr is giving Lubov the cold shoulder. He does not want to talk to Lubov. He is 
very unhappy at Lubov. He gets a very visceral reaction towards Lubov, and he does not want to face this guy at all. He wants him to go away. And so Murr is doing everything he can to make the conversation as short as possible, basically. Yeah, yeah. And so and good point, because you're you're looking at it from Mir's point of view, because he's our point of view character here. Mm -hmm. So if we were looking at it from Lubov's point of view, we might say he's trying to provoke his friend or he's trying to get something or he's, you know, um, I'm not exactly I don't have that one um off the top of my head, but but something along those lines that he's trying to provoke his friend, trying to get him to do something. We don't mm-hmm. necessarily know what that is. Yeah, it, and when you're writing or when you're editing your story, it's great to look from both points of view and be able to think about what is the essential action of both or if there's more characters of every single character. Um, I feel like a good analogy is to think of your characters uh, like you're watching them on television and they're actors that are doing all the things that you're writing down. What does that look like for all of them? And what's the subtext that you can pick up between what their, what their actions are? Right. And that's exactly, that's exactly it, right? It's the subtext because we don't want to be on the nose with everything, right? We don't want necessarily Mir to say, look, I just don't want you around. Would you just go? You know, (laughs) instead he's ignoring him. He's, you know, he's not answering the questions in the way Mm -hmm. that he knows Lubov, or I suspect the way he knows Lubov would want him to answer. He's not taking the bait. Yeah. And so when, so that's like, that's the that's what we're aiming for in our scenes rather than having them be very on the nose which is why we're looking for that essential action underneath what are they you know what are they trying what's what are they what's the motivation and therefore why you know what are they doing mm-hmm. so after we look at after we kind of get the conclusion and because we're looking at this from Mir's point of view and he's giving Lubov the cold shoulder, we ask ourselves, what's changed in the scene, basically? So when we look at the beginning of the scene to the end of the scene, what has happened? I mean, we know that Lubov has has left. He doesn't seem to have... He's angry at Murr, but um, it doesn't seem like Lubov has gotten maybe the information or the response to this conversation that um, Lubov was wanting when he came over to Murr's house. Uh, and so, um, I don't know, we're, we're, but for Murr, it's a little bit more unclear on what the value shift has maybe changed for him. I would say he, he's, kind of, he's kind of tense at the beginning of the conversation and at the end, but it's a different type of tense yeah yeah so it's it's clear that lubov doesn't get what he wants as you said Mm -hmm. but yeah mir is he's 
we kind of said this, he's tense without really being aware of it at the beginning, and he's tense and aware of it and at the end. Aware of it at the end, yeah, yeah. Right? Um, and another way to say it is that, you know, Lubov arrives, and he's a source of irritation, and then he leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, and... So there's, you know, there's still irritation, but at least he's gone. And there's a moment when Lubov says, well, I wasn't, I wasn't sorry he left. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Not sorry he's gone. (laughs) Okay, so you can come up with, for this question, you can come up with all kinds of different things that change. You know, it could be day and night. It could be like in the quote, cold and hot. Um, mm-hmm. life and death, courage and cowardice, but, but you want to kind of look at what's the range of things that change in the scene. And then the fourth question is, what are you going to, right? If you're doing the story grid spreadsheet, you would be asking, what do you, what value are you going to put in the spreadsheet? Mm-hmm. But let's put the spreadsheet away for a moment. We're just looking at the scene, but we want to look at how it relates to the global value and it doesn't have to be the same as the global value it doesn't have to be precisely love hate or anything on that scale or life death to a fate worse than death or anything on that scale but it has to relate to that in some way so that you're moving the the protagonist closer to or further from the goal that they're pursuing what they want and what they need. So if we were to put, you know, if we were to take this, these values that we've kind of collected, these shifts or changes that we've collected, what would we put in this in a spreadsheet related to either love and hate or life and death? For like love and hate, I mean, I, I think there's a very kind of brotherly love and hate uh, that we could point to in terms of the relationship between Murr and um, Lubov. He, Lubov alludes to how they used to, uh, mm-hmm. when they were younger, they used to work, they were, they, they knew each other and they uh, kind of ran in the same groups. Um, I would say it's a little less clear for how it relates to this kind of obsession story that we know kind of comes into into four at the very end Mm -hmm. and that's hinted to at the beginning um with the with the cool scene of the the spirit of ichka on the lake um and so it's a little harder to nail down that one Mm -hmm. um in terms of horror in terms of life and death directly we we do going back i guess to the the conversation with the two men you could identify kind of a a metaphorical death of any shred of their friendship or past companionship Mm -hmm. um that sounds like it seems like that is on the ropes a little bit Mm -hmm. um but i don't get the sense that Murr is in any immediate danger following this conversation however knowing from the synopsis that danger comes a little bit later Right, right. And you know, what occurred to me is that 
they do talk about the death of Jury and his woman. That's right, yeah. But since... Um, let's see, does Mir already know about it? Mir, yeah. He, uh, it, it, I think it's implied that he skipped whatever yeah. ceremony that yeah. they were to be honored at. And I think um, Lubov, part of why he's visiting Mur is to share this information with Mur that Jury and uh, his woman, as it's called in the story, yeah. are now <laughs> dead. I feel <laughs> a little awkward saying that. Yeah, that's a great But yeah. Kind of bad saying that. Um, and, and so life and death is present in, in that as well. Right. Um, and, you know, if, if we're, if we're the, the author or an editor working with the author, we can ask them or they can, they will know, does that relate to the overall, you know, to the global story? But, but overall, if we're looking at what these, the essential action and what changes from the beginning to the end we don't see that it's really, we can't tell on the face of this whether it, it's impacting Mir's life or death mm-hmm. or possibility of a fate worse than death. And so that's, you know, that's something to consider. And then we go on to the five commandments of story after doing those four initial questions. And so in this, we have the inciting incident, right? Mira is, he's chopping wood, mm-hmm. trying to keep his mind off things. And then the thing that throws him out of stasis, essentially, is that Lubob shows up. Right. And he gets this, we, we know it's the inciting incident, not because Lubov says anything out front that's like particularly aggressive or shocking. It's just Murr's kind of internal reaction, how his body so viscerally relax, reacts to hearing this man's voice. Yeah, yeah, so much so like he, he almost cuts himself with the axe. Which yeah, he <laughs> chops his like, foot. That's pretty, that's unpleasant so when when lubov shows up it uh, within mir arises this desire for him to get the heck out of there yeah so we have inciting incident check yep <laughs> so if we're looking at the progressive complications right again progressive complications are the, the when when the inciting incident happens the pov character has a desire and they take action toward that desire, but they are thwarted. Mm-hmm. So if Mir wants Lubov to hit the road, what are the obstacles? What are the progressive complications? And that they're not just obstacles, but they're obstacles that get that make it increasingly unlikely that Mir is going to get what he wants. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's they're kind of dancing around that why Lubov is there isn't just to report um, jury jury's death. Mm-hmm. It's that 
Lubov is trying to get something from Murr, whether it's maybe an apology for not coming to the ceremony or an extra level deeper that that's uh, it, kind of core to the tension between these two guys. And so it's when uh, one of the progressive complications, I think kind of the core one, is when Murr kind of calls his calls Lubov's bluff on that. Um, Murr just says to his face, to Lubov's face, that it's not jury's death that's bothering you. And then uh, that's when things start to get a little bit more heated. Yeah. So it's, I mean, overall, if we were to kind of categorize these complications, then Mir is trying to give Lubov the cold shoulder and Lubov yeah. isn't having any of it. Like he's either, he's either not like not getting it. Like it's going over his head cause it's yeah. too subtle, which that's not what's going on here. It's yeah. that he's stubborn enough or determined enough to stick with it. Mm -hmm. And so then Lubov or Mir is kind of, yeah, he's giving this lukewarm, like, Lubov has just told him, hey, Jury and his woman drowned sometime this morning. And he doesn't get the reaction he's hoping for. So he mm -hmm. keeps poking and poking and poking. And then, yeah, then there's this moment when Mir says, yeah, I'm bothered, but that's not why you're here. Yeah. So why don't you just a more tense. Yeah. fess up? It's right, this kind of turning point in a way, mm -hmm. moving, moving in that direction. So, but moving in the direction of what, right? Normally when we look at the progressive complication and then we would look for a turning point, that would create, we get to a point of no return where the POV character has to make a decision mm -hmm. and it's a best bad choice or it's a choice between irreconcilable goods. And here there's a sort of, it's in, it's, it's very much in subtext. And I think the scene could probably use some um, like making this more explicit is that they're, you know, we find out in just in telling, you know, in summary that Ishka Lubov's betrothed had drowned just before the harvest the previous year. So this is a pretty big revelation, but it's it's dropped in the middle of this telling. And it seems to be mere just trying to decide, should I confront him or should I not? Mm -hmm. But it's not completely clear. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not, I guess we know, reading the synopsis, that we know that Mir suspects Lubov of murdering Ishka, mm -hmm. and knowing that, um, that synopsis going in, we can understand um, Mir's very uh, visceral reaction to Lubov coming to visit Mir and not really acknowledge this truth that Mir is seems to be aware of 
Um, and so I agree there's, there's, there's definitely some ways that could bring out um, mere suspicion a little bit more explicitly um, so that the reader can follow along and also become suspicious of Lubov at kind of the same time. Right. Yeah. And I think so then if we're, you know, we're looking for the, and that question that arises is the climax question. Mm-hmm. I mean, crisis question. <laughs> and then, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then the decision is the climax, right? Right. And, and, and I feel like the crisis is we kind of get that mirror is, is making a choice on whether or not to say more about this, this, uh, suspicion. Um, but I think to make that crisis even more, uh, to, to underscore how much of a crisis it it is, there's, if, if, um, there's a little bit more about Mir's suspicion of Lubov killing Ishka, I think that can make that crisis point, uh, pretty exciting. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so, you know, and, and with, ha- yeah, ha- making a definite decision. And, and again, it doesn't have to be on the nose, but, but in some way indicate whether, you know, he's looking at his friend pointedly or, you know, something mm-hmm. like that he's deciding clearly I'm not going to bring it up or clearly... I am, which would be clear because he would have brought it up. Yeah. Um, but, but what we have essentially is either passively he decide, you know, he either decides and we don't know, or he just waits it out and Lubov makes the decision because he says you are you are the fool, mm-hmm. and he leaves. Mm-hmm. And so the resolution essentially is that Lubov leaves. And Mir is not sorry he's gone. <laughs> yeah, Mir is, he's happy Lubov's gone, but he's a little bit, he's a little bit rattled still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's not, right. It's not, definitely not pure relief. It's just a little decrease in tension. Oh, yeah. I can stop yeah. gripping. I can stop my white knuckle grip on the uh, axe. <laughs> on the axe, Yeah. So then we kind of see him essentially taking stock of all the stuff he has to do still, though clearly that's going to be, you know, the subtext is that he's thinking, he's mulling this over in addition to noticing all the stuff that he has to do. Right. He, he recognizes that he has lots of things to be worried about and, things going on, but he recognizes that there's a, there's a bigger issue both internally and externally that, um, he's gonna have to probably deal with sometime soon. And I think that, uh, will probably lead in pretty nicely into the rest of the short story. Yeah. So when we are then to come back and kind of revisit the change, that happens from beginning to end of this scene, then what we want 
is for there to be some, like for the change to be related to Lubov's suspicion, possibly, right? That's, that's what we would say. That's one option for moving, for having this scene change along the life and death. Because what we know from the synopsis is that as Mir's suspicion increases, Lubov, you know, like when he, when he finally confronts Lubov, that's when Lubov is going to go, yeah, you got me. Okay. I'll (laughs) go, I'll go and uh, own up, but, but you'll come with me, right? Just so I won't be alone. Mm -hmm. And then he can, you know, do his trickery. So the author knows that the suspicion is going to lead to confrontation, which is going to lead to um, the trickery. But, and we don't have to know all of that, but it should be present in the scene, you know, that there should be some way of telling if we come back and look at it at the end of the story, oh, yep, he was moving further from or closer to life or death yeah, or fate worse than death or love or hate mm-hmm, in somewhere, mm-hmm. you know, whatever the range is for the story. Yep, whatever the range is for the story and for the genre. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a lot. <laughs> But that's how, like, that's how we, as StoryGrid editors, analyze scenes. And you don't have to, you know, you don't have to fully embrace the StoryGrid methodology to understand, you know, kind of what that, that your scene should change from beginning to end and that that change should relate to the big change that happens in your story. Mm-hmm. And that this, these these questions can help you figure that out. It's really fun to watch for how scenes change in your favorite stories and your favorite shows and movies, because um, the good ones do it super super well. So I remember once I kind of grasped that concept, um, it made just seeing stories so much more interesting because it's like, how is the scene going to turn and what is it going to mean for the rest of the for the rest of the story? And so it's a it's a really great concept to internalize and work into your own storytelling. Right, right. And you're working on the Story Grid guide to Animal Farm, is that right? Yeah, um, I know you and Sean got to talk about Animal Farm a couple episodes ago. Um, and of course, you got to talk about the one of the maybe the central value shift of the whole story, um, right in the middle when the pigs when Napoleon officially takes over for the pigs, um, and that is just a amazing, amazing um, value shift. Yeah, yeah, that's a really cool scene. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's cool. I'm looking forward to reading that. <laughs> Thanks. I'm. It's been a really fun project, um, and I can't wait to. I'm working on it right now, so I can't wait to keep working on it. Awesome. I'm working on Treasure Island. Which I is... have to admit, I've never actually read Treasure Island, so uh, I think I'm going to need to read your guide to it um, as a as a companion when 
so I can finally actually read the story myself. I, you know, I picked it because I had, I had watched the movie when I was a kid and was totally captivated by it, just really pulled in. And so I didn't know how it would be, you know, will it hold up? Now that I'm an adult, and and, I, and it totally does. It is that is awesome. It's that a rocking awesome. story. <laughs> that's that. I mean, that's just because you kind of worry about that that those stories don't hold up as you get older. But the good ones, especially when you're looking at them under a magnifying glass, like we get to do, um, that's just so cool that it holds up and it's still exciting. Yeah, yeah. Well, I can't wait to read yours. Uh-huh. Thanks. So we actually have an editorial mission to help everyone do this with their own scenes, which I think is, I mean, it's such a powerful tool. So I really, even if you feel some resistance to it, read one of Jay's posts on resistance and then drive on because this is going to, this will change your stories. It'll change the both the big picture and your individual scenes will be so much stronger. Mm-hmm. So scene value shifts. That's our editorial mission for the week. So go through that process that we went through answering those questions, and I'll have them all listed in the, in the show notes. So I won't go through them again now, but, but they'll be in the show notes. You go through those four initial questions and then the five commandments of storytelling and look at how, you know, how do the circumstances or the characters' lives change from the beginning to the end of the scene? And then consider that specific change in light of your story's global value. So here, right, we have an within an obsession love story, somewhere on the range of love and hate, you're going to be looking at, or in a horror story, you're looking at life, death, to uh, death would be a mercy, a fate worse than death, okay? And if you have subplots, it's good to follow them, you know, check where things are moving on those, as well as the internal genre. But for right now, focus on just the global genre. And then... If the change within the scene is not connected at all, then consider whether you need the scene for some other reason. This is a pretty, it seems like we don't, you know, in light of the synopsis, this seems like a pretty pivotal scene. So it doesn't have, like the change really could be stronger, but it's not shoe leather like we talked about with Jari in um, episode 117. So it's not, you know, it's not that it's unnecessary. It's that it needs to be amped up. So if it's necessary, then you'll, you're going to want to add to your to-do list to revise it. Depending on where you're at, you might just kind of play with it just as an exercise to see, like, how can I make this change relate more to the global value and moving the character or the character circumstances closer to or further from you know, one of those values. So this can be a little tricky when you're first doing it. So if you get stuck, don't stay stuck. 
leave a comment or write to me at hello at writership.com. You can leave a comment in the show notes, whatever's easiest for you, but don't stay stuck. This is a really powerful tool and it's going to make your storytelling so much stronger. So a reminder that you can find the, right, the editorial missions and all of the information you need for them in the show notes, but you can go to writership.com slash episodes too and sign up to get those editorial missions delivered right to your inbox. And remember that the podcast is sponsored by Jim Kukral from the Author Marketing Club. Jim just launched his new service for authors called Happy Book Reviews. We all know that books with more high-quality reviews sell more copies. Happybookreviews.com is a service where Jim hopes to make your book happy with reviews. Check out the options at www.happybookreviews.com because nobody likes a sad book. You can make your book happy with reviews. Okay. And Jim Kukrell and the Author Marketing Club cover hosting and technical support for the show, for which we are deeply grateful. But our Patreon crew supports our time in preparing for the show. We have a new reward for the quartermaster's level, and that's the Writership Podcast Book Club. Of course, it's not just any book club. You know me. I've got to make it very nerdy. So each <laughs> month we choose a story from your suggestions and read it and analyze it the way I would for a story grid diagnostic. And then we'll discuss it in a recorded call. So if you want to find out more about that or other ways to support the podcast, you can visit patreon.com slash writership. If you enjoy the show and want other ways to show your support, please leave us a rating and review on iTunes or Stitcher. If you want to have your five pages reviewed, please visit www.writership.com slash submissions. Finally, thanks so much to Jay Peters for joining me today. You can check out the show notes for how to contact him and check out his excellent blog post series for NaNoWriMo. That's it for episode 119. We'll see you next time on the Writership Podcast. Ready for Leslie and Clark to help you find the treasure in your manuscript? Submit your pages to writership.org forward slash podcast.